All right, we want to welcome you this morning to uh, Plum Creek Chapel, and uh, we're going to continue our study here of what lies ahead, a biblical overview of the end times. We've been camped out in a section of the end times called the Tribulation. You see it here kind of highlighted in yellow, and that's kind of been our focus because so much of God's Word focuses on uh, that section. But as we continue, just a couple of quick announcements, a reminder that if you've not picked up the book, you're welcome to take one of those from the back table. It's kind of a comprehensive uh, study of the end times, and we will eventually, after we finish with the tribulation, get to some of the more positive aspects of the end times, the uh, glorious and victorious return of our Savior, the establishment of the kingdom, and all of the new heavens and the new earth and things that come with that. Wanted to mention too, uh, upcoming this Wednesday, we're going to begin a new series on how to read and understand the Bible. Uh, for those of you familiar with uh, this uh, content, it's often referred to as Bible study methods. And I've had the privilege of teaching Bible study methods, or hermeneutics is the technical term, at uh, the Bible college and seminary levels for many, many years. And it's one of my favorite uh, subjects because it's great to see uh, just the look in people's eyes when they understand that contrary to popular belief, this book is not some convoluted, uh, complex, difficult, mysterious book that only experts can understand. Anybody can read and understand the Bible if you just understand literature and grammar and syntax and just simple things. And so we're going to spend quite a bit of time on that series, at least through the end of the year, probably a little bit uh, further, but uh, that starts this coming Wednesday. And also note, and I mentioned this in the Plum Creek Chapel newsletter, but for those who may not get that newsletter or who are watching us online, we're going to shift back to a one-hour session on Wednesday nights from 6 to 7. Now, you know how that works. Sometimes we finish up at 7 and then there's some Q&A and we might drift a little past 7, so we're not going to be legalistic about it, uh, but definitely not going to be targeting a 90-minute session like we did with what in the world is going on. So that'll start this coming Wednesday from 6 to 7. And then uh, today we want to continue uh, with, uh, I guess, now our seventh session uh, talking about the, uh, the tribulation. And as I was driving in this morning from Colorado Springs, I looked up in the sky and I saw what appeared to be a cross. It was kind of looked sort of like clouds, but not really, but it was a clear shape of the cross. And I immediately, my mind went to Matthew 24, 30, which if you recall, when we spent all those weeks uh, studying the Olivet Discourse, uh, Jesus himself said that at his return, everyone will see the sign of the Son of Man. And a lot of people have speculated that's going to be a cross. Uh, we don't actually know for sure what uh, the sign is, but as I looked a little closer, I realized I was looking mostly west, so it couldn't be the sign of the Son of Man, because we know he's going to come from the east, split the eastern sky, and then I took a closer look, and of course I realized it wasn't clouds at all, it was just the usual climate engineering, a bit of, you know, solar radiation management, uh, chemical ice nucleation, atmospheric uh, aerosol injection, stratospheric spraying, and, uh, you know, the, the, the cloud albedo enhancement, all of that stuff. And so, you know, it's just a great day to be alive. It took a big breath and breathed in all of those, you know, aluminum, strontium, barium and stuff. And just felt glad to, uh, to be alive. Come, Lord Jesus, is what I thought. So either way, it inspired uh, thoughts of the return of Christ, I guess, is the moral of that story. Uh, but we want to talk about this notion here of uh, the 
the second coming. We spent some, I mean, of the, uh, the tribulation leading up to the second coming. We spent some time in the previous weeks uh, talking about that period of time between the rapture and uh, the start of the tribulation, the official signing of the peace treaty according to Daniel 9.27. And we said that at least three events follow the rapture. One is this Western alliance, as described in Daniel 11, that forms and invades Egypt. And then the battle of Gog and Magog ensues, Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's what we talked a lot about uh, last week. And then the Antichrist is unveiled, and he's unveiled at least from the perspective of those who know Bible history, because he's the one that signs the peace treaty, and that precisely at that moment, you see the arrow pointing there, is when uh, the seven-year tribulation starts. So we're now in uh, the tribulation period, and I intended last week and this week to get to the seal uh, judgments, and I do promise we will get to those, but I wanted to bring up this uh, chart of the book of Revelation that we've come back to again and again. And you know, as I was preparing again for the seal judgments, I couldn't help but spend some time in chapters 4 and 5. And you see there on the screen in the far left, uh, uh, it says theodicy. A theodicy. I'll explain more about what that is in a moment. But I got so enthralled reading verse by verse through chapters 4 and 5. Before I knew it, I had put in much more material. And so we're probably not going to get to the seal judgments today either. But it's very important. I have not normally spent time uh, really expositing these two chapters when I'm talking about the tribulation period, but it just, it just really touched my heart to see this prelude, uh, if you will. So if you look at this outline of the book of Revelation, again, contrary to what a lot of people believe, the, the book of Revelation is not complicated. It's one of the easiest books in the Bible to outline. Uh, people have been told so many times by false teachers that Revelation's too complicated, nobody can understand it, it's too much symbolism, that they've come to believe it. But if you actually sit down and read it, you find it actually follows a pretty clear outline. And it is introduced in chapter 1 with, indeed, the Revelation, the name of the book, uh, no S. Uh, by the way, speaking of that, I was listening to par, uh, part of my Wednesday night session, the final part eight of what in the world is going on. And I, at one point I got to talking so fast, I forget I was talking about certain chapters in Revelation and I, and I conflated Revelation and chapters and it came out like Revelations. And I just knew I was going to get a bunch of emails from people saying, you said Revelations because I make such a big deal about it. it's Revelation, not Revelations. But sometimes... Uh, you know, the brain gets going faster than the mouth, or the mouth gets going faster than the brain. But anyway, chapter 1 is the introduction of the revelation. The apocalypsis is the Greek word, the unveiling of the uh, King of kings and Lord of lords, the eternal Son of God who's going to come back and make all things new. Then in chapters 2 and 3, we see uh, personal letters written from Jesus to seven literal historic churches that existed in the late 1st century A.D. But then chapters 4 and 5, where we're going to camp out today... So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, you can be turning there. Really set the stage for all that follows. And as you can see uh, in this middle section of the chart on the screen, really chapters 6 all the way to uh, chapter 19, uh, which you see at the bottom of the screen there, represent the tribulation period up to the coming of Christ, the return of Christ. Chapter 19 in Revelation reveals the second coming of Christ and all of his power and glory, just as he himself described it 
in many places, but particularly the, sermon, the uh, Olivet Discourse. And then chapters 20 to 22 all relate to the kingdom. It starts out with uh, the millennial phase of the kingdom, that first thousand years on the old heaven and old earth. And then we get into the new heavens and the new earth, or the eternal state sometimes it's called, in chapters 21 and 22. So Revelation really isn't that complicated. Uh, in the black lettering there on the screen, you see what some uh, uh, commentators will call interludes. I call it supplemental information. And it, uh, it just is not necessarily in the flow of thought, but it's like God gives John, the author of Revelation, the Apostle John, a glimpse of additional information that relates to his end times plan. And I've been really camped out in Revelation in recent weeks because I'm preparing one of two messages for the Duluth Bible Conference, which I'll be going to week after or a week from tomorrow. And one of my assigned passages for that conference is Revelation 14 to 16. And so uh, that's, uh, I'm calling it one second before the second coming, because those chapters literally lead right up to the Battle of Armageddon and include the Battle of Armageddon and then the return of Christ. And so um, it's really uh, interesting when you read through the book of Revelation. Obviously, it does use a lot of apocalyptic language and uh, sort of symbols, but almost always it's pretty clear what he's talking about. It uses clear figures of speech, uh, such as like or as or that, that type of thing or I saw something like, or I saw something as, and you know that it's just John describing uh, an actual event or picture that God revealed to him, but he's using figurative uh, language, and, and we do that in, in every language. So I really want to focus in on this uh, concept of a theodicy, uh, and a theodicy is just a fancy word for a justification for the outpouring of God's wrath. In other words, chapters 4 and 5 answer the question, what gives God the right to pour out his wrath in these final days? What gives him the right? And so we dive in here with verse 1 of chapter 4. After these things, these things obviously refers to the revelation of the messages that John had given to the seven churches, that Jesus had given to the seven churches, as John recorded. And after John received these messages, he saw a vision of heaven in which Jesus Christ invited him to enter heaven and receive more revelation about future events. Notice he says, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Um, now, that phrase, after these things, what you'll find if you read through the book of Revelation is it occurs again and again, each time sort of introducing a new scene a new vision that God uh, is giving. And what John saw, he says, immediately I was in the Spirit. In other words, he physically was still on the earth, but in his mind's eye, God revealed to him. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one uh, sat on uh, the throne. And, you know, a lot of people, sometimes it's people from our understanding of Scripture that see the Bible through the lens of a literal, grammatical, historical approach to studying the Bible, will point to verse 1 here and say, this is sort of a veiled reference to the rapture. I definitely don't think that at all. In context, it's God telling John, come up here, meaning physically I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to transport you, actually in the spirit, uh, meaning literally I'm going I'm to give you a perspective from a thousand, you know, 30,000 feet. Nothing about the rapture here. The rapture is not mentioned in Revelation. It's implied 
because we don't see the church referenced at all after verse uh, chapter 3. The word church is never mentioned. Uh, but of course we understand the pre-tribulation rapture not from the book of Revelation, but from a host of other passages that make it very plain that the church, the bride of Christ, will not be present on the earth during this outpouring of God's wrath. So John, you know, sees this really large uh, throne room. Uh, it's, a, it's a large room with a throne in the center of it, and someone is sitting on the throne. Well, who is that? He says, he who sat there was like, here's again another figure of speech, like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So the colored gems probably symbolize God's holiness and purity. You know, gemstones are noted for their purity. And uh, I like what Warren Wearsby says about the rainbow. He said, usually a rainbow appears after the storm, but here we see it coming before the storm. Because what we're about to see is just unprecedented wrath of God being poured out on planet Earth. The throne obviously is a place of rule, and these elders will have positions of authority under God. So who are the 24 elders? Well, I believe very clearly they represent the church. Uh, The only other option is angels, and some people do suggest that. But angels had not been judged yet, and according to Jesus, they won't be judged until His second coming. Whoever this is has already been judged and received their rewards and their crowns. And obviously for the believer in the present church age, that occurs at the rapture, which uh, has already happened by this point. So there's really no need to spend a whole lot of time speculating on the 24 elders. They're going to come up again and again. Uh, I would suggest that that's the church. But either way, the point is this is a glorious, magnificent scene in heaven. And what's about to unfold uh, gets even more glorious. From the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and back. In Scripture, lightning and thunderings are always uh, portents of future judgments, impending judgment. We see this in Revelation a lot, and it's, it's always connected in Revelation to some type of temple scene, and, and it marks an event of great significance that's about to take place on the earth. The seven lamps were blazing, uh, John says, burning before the throne, uh, and he says these are the seven spirits of God. Obviously, we know according to Scripture, comparing Scripture to Scripture, there's only one spirit of God. God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and spirit. So the picture is really one of you know seven uh, characteristics, if you will, of the spirit of God, and uh, and and the very presence of God. It's these torches that are sort of standing at the ready, about to unleash and consume the wickedness of uh, evil all over the earth uh, at the hand of God's judgment. And he describes the four living creatures. Um, Four living creatures were like a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle, representing four classes of created beings. You've got wild beasts like a lion, domesticated animals like a calf, human beings, man, and flying creatures like the eagle. And together they picture all of creation coming together in this pivotal moment to praise God and God's sovereign control over all aspects of creation. 
Each creature also seems to possess different qualities that are appropriate in their service to God. So lions are strong, oxen are servants, men have intelligence, and eagles are swift. Listen to what he says. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, that's the church, that's us, fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before him. So in other words, as these living creatures are giving praise to God, the 24 elders likewise fall down and just spontaneously are prone before God. And, and, and you just see the, in the it, things building into a crescendo here. Something big is about to happen. These creatures are worshiping God loudly, and here comes the church, and just instinctively we begin uh, to worship uh, Him. You know, when a, when a victorious athlete returned home from the games and participated in the final celebration in, in, in the ancient Near East, he would ceremoniously offer the wreath or crown that he had earned to his deity. And here we're casting our crowns continuously before God Almighty. And what are we saying? You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. Again, that's part of the vision of the four living creatures, I think, is to remind us of God as our creator. And by your will, they exist and were created. So the total impression of this uh, highly symbolic vision that John sees is, is clear enough. Uh, the angelic creatures close, closest to God will bow down before God and give Him glory. And then everything that follows in chapter 5 all the way to the end of the book needs to be seen in the light of the character of God manifested here in this vision. It's what we should do when we're in the presence of God. We should say, holy, holy, holy. God is perfectly holy, just, gracious, righteous, pure, omnipotent, eternal, and sovereign. And this also kind of helps us accept the revelation that's to come as God wipes out huge segments of humanity in the future. We need to remember who is God and who is not. And so then we get to chapter 5. And it becomes really emotional here. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And notice, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look at it. So John records the revelation of this sealed scroll and, as we're going to see in a moment, its recipient. And he did so to continue the revelation of what God will be doing in heaven before he pours out the judgments that are to follow in chapters 6 to 18, the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgment. So it's continuing the same setting or the same vision that John saw in chapter 4 but it's getting more to the specific moment of, of this scroll of judgments. So the scroll was the focus of John's attention in this chapter. 
And it's what Jesus Christ opens in chapter 6, resulting in the first judgments that will come upon the earth. Um, in fact, uh, it was so full of words that John could see writing on the inside and outside. Notice he said written inside and on the back. In John's day, people used a seal to keep the contents of a document secret until some authoritative person broke the seal. One scholar said this, quote, What simpler and more sublime way of picturing God's ultimate sovereignty over all of history could be found than this picture of the scroll resting in the hand of God? However strong evil becomes, however fierce be the satanic evils that assail God's people on earth, history still rests in God's hand. I mean, what a powerful statement. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And watch John's reaction. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and to read the scroll or to look at it. You know, John, like all believers like us and believers throughout history wept because it seemed as though evil would go unchecked. John did not want to see God's vindication of his people as part of this messianic hope that was revealed by the Old Testament prophets deferred any longer. He didn't want to see it go unfulfilled for any future undetermined period of time. He was ready. He knew that this was justice on the cusp of taking place. And I wonder if we ever weep for the evil in this world. Boy, I do. You've heard me talk about it many times. This is an unspeakable evils that go on in this world at the hands of the Luciferians that are conspiring with Satan to, and his demons to usher in a satanic one-world system. And John could tell that this scroll was, in a sense, bursting at the seam, ready to be poured out, but nobody, nobody could open the seal. Well, then we read that one of the 24 elders comforted John with the news that Jesus Christ would open the scroll. Jesus Christ had achieved victory over all of God's enemies, and therefore He had the authority to open the scroll and to release its contents. John says, But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, those are both divine messianic titles throughout uh, the Old Testament. And it shows that this fulfillment would in fact be part of God's plan. As God's ultimate anointed one, only Jesus possessed the authority necessary for this task. He overcame Satan. He overcame sin and hell and the grave and death. Remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be defeated was death. So only Jesus could implement God's purposes for the future that this scroll revealed. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain. 
I mean, the, the contrast or the juxtaposition, if you will, between the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb that has been slain is, is almost more than we can really imagine. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand. Right hand in Hebrew culture signifies strength and power of him who sat on the throne. So John sees the Lamb who's now the center stage. He's in the center of all the angelic creatures gathered around. He's the central character. He's the central character of the book of Revelation and of the end times. And the Lamb was standing ready to complete his work. And he was bearing the marks of his death, which qualified him as the one who could then open uh, the scrolls. His self-sacrifice gave him his supreme power. And John saw God the Father on the throne and the Lamb coming and taking the scroll out of his right hand, clearly symbolizing this transfer of authority from the Father to the Son to reveal the future and to execute judgment. So this is that pivotal moment. We talked a lot about this in our series through the book of Hebrews. And if you remember, Hebrews uh, quoted uh, Psalm 110. By the way, no uh, Old Testament references repeated more often in the New Testament than Psalm 110. And it's appropriate because it talks about when Christ would come back. He's at the right hand of the throne of the Father now. And David writes here in Psalm 110, it's a messianic psalm, so he's speaking as if the voice of the Messiah. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion and rule in the midst of your enemies. And that's what we see taking place in this preliminary prelude to the outpouring of, of God's wrath is this transfer of, uh, of judgment. When we lived in Illinois years ago, we just had our two oldest at the time. They were like two and four, uh, or maybe one and three, but we had uh, uh, a dog named Shadow. And Shadow was just a little mutt, really annoying, frankly, but uh, one of those that barks, um, you know, incessantly. And uh, But we used, we, had, we lived at kind of out in the country uh, up against a big ravine, and we, we used to let Shadow out. And for some reason, we got in the habit because she would see squirrels or deer she would see something out there and she'd go barking at the door incessantly and we'd have to let her out and we got in the habit of anytime we let her out we'd say go get them shadow go get them shadow and she'd run out there and of course she'd never catch anything but that's kind of what i think of when i picture this scene is is god is telling jesus go get them go get them you know it's been a long time waiting for judgment, evil going unchecked. 6,000 years so far of Satan wreaking havoc. Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age. The whole world is under his sway. More and more and more uh, evil. Now, when he, Jesus, had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders, that's us, fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So this transfer precipitates an outpouring of 
praise for the Lamb because it signaled that indeed there is one who can rightly judge. There is one who can open the seals. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, this is the church, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. So the Lamb's receiving authority from God to advance His plan led us, the church, and these angelic figures to again sing a new song. The word new there is the Greek word kainen. It means distinctive in quality. Not necessarily recent, but just unique. It's as if they're singing with a new enthusiasm and a new joy and a new power. Never before had they been as filled with the compulsion to sing like this and to praise and rejoice as they were on this occasion. You know, this phrase, a new song, is a well-known expression in the Psalms. And uh, it was often related to song, songs that were sung on the occasion of the festivals and you know, celebrating some new victory and so forth. It often focuses on the mercies of God. But, you know, this idea of a new song, it's not what we might think in English, where if, you know, Jeff were to, you know, really follow his heart and compose a new song like he does sometimes and then introduce us uh, to it. That's not the significance of new here. It's, again, it's distinctive in its quality. It's something that has a different enthusiasm behind it. And we kind of get this idea when you go back and look at the Old Testament prophet Isaiah where the new song relates to this ultimate deliverance of God from the power of Satan into the kingdom of God here on earth. Psalm 42 says, Sing to the Lord a new song, again pointing toward this future time, and His praise from the ends of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you coastlands and you inhabitants of them. Let the wilderness and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kadar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Selah sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. Watch this. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. Mighty warrior there is the concept. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. And watch what he says. I have held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. See, God has been holding his peace for a long time. You know, often we get angry at God when we, when we see the injustices of life. And we ask that ever-present question, why? Why God? Why now? Why this? Why me? Why them? Why her? Why him? And we don't have the mind of God. And it, it often only leads to more confusion when we try to understand God through the lens of our temporal human paradigm. Romans 11 reminds us that that's never a good thing because God is so far beyond what we can imagine in this realm of time, space, and matter. But this verse and the prophet Isaiah reminds us that 
God is not oblivious. He's not aloof. He's up there watching. And he's sovereign. And he's holding his peace until just the right moment. He's restraining himself until just the right moment. And that moment is what John is being told and shown in Revelation 4 and 5. This theodicy, this justification for what's about to happen because when it is unleashed we've never seen anything like it we've never seen anything like it and i promise we will get to the detailed descriptions of those judgments but it's just helpful to kind of uh, understand the context and set the stage you know it's kind of like when you read a book always read the preface and the introduction if there is one uh, because it really kind of gives you an idea, especially the introduction, um, well, and the preface, into the author's heart. And if there's a foreword, you want to read that too. Typically, that's by somebody else, but it kind of helps set the stage for what's about to follow. So back to verses 9 and 10. Notice he said of us, the, the 24 elders representing the church, that you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Time and again, Jesus promised that we will reign with Christ in the kingdom someday. He told the disciples during his earthly ministry that they would sit on 12 thrones with him in the kingdom. He told uh, the disciples in uh, Luke 19 in the form of a parable, the parable of the Minas, that while he's gone away to receive the kingdom, which is where he is right now at the right hand of the throne of God, that we should be faithful with the stewardship that we've been given. And someday he's going to come back. And when he does, we're going to give an account of our faithfulness on this earth. And if that were to happen in our day, then we would stand before the Bema judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, Romans 14, 12, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, 1 Corinthians 3, several passages that talk about this, Colossians 3. And we're going to give an account. What did we do with that mina? Remember the parable of the Minas, we talked about this when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount, because in the Sermon, I'm sorry, the Olivet Discourse, because in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gives a similar parable called the Parable of the Talents, which is all about Israel, and it's different. In the Parable of the Talents, Israel is represented as servants who receive different uh, levels of uh, stewardship, one, five, and, and ten. In the parable of the Minas, which is clearly a reference to the church because it's, it's Jesus is sort of hinting at the fact that he's not going to usher in the kingdom right away. This, he gave this parable the day before the triumphal entry, the last week of his life. And Luke tells us that in the parable of the Minas that the, the disciples thought the kingdom was going to, to come immediately. They thought it's finally here. He's going to march into Jerusalem and he's going to throw off the shackles of Rome and take the throne. Uh, and so Jesus, knowing that that's not how it was going to play out, that, that suffering had to come first, the cross had to come before the crown, he told the parable. And so in the parable of the minas, unlike the talents, every servant gets the same thing, one mina. And we all have one life of service, you know, uh, one life to live. Wasn't that the name of an old soap opera, I think? Uh, not that I ever watched soap operas, but we all have the same thing. One life of service, and we're going to give an account of that. And those who uh, serve faithfully will be put in charge of more, according to the parable of the Minas, um, and have different levels of authority. But Hebrews talks about this as well. And so uh, it's, it's one of many motivations that God's Word gives us to live faithfully for our Lord here and now. Um, 
So he goes on to say in verse 11, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, and listen to this, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. It's giving us seven ways, rapid fire, that Christ is worthy. This is uh, the repetition of the word and is a literary device called a polysyndeton. Really not necessary to know that word except that it, according to one of the top grammars in Greek, is a means of producing an impression of extensiveness and abundance and an exhaustive summary. You know, in English, if I were to write a sentence where I continued to say and, 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 my editor would cross that out and add a comma because it's just better grammar. But by keeping the word and, it's the simple Greek word chi used a thousand times or more in uh, the New Testament and it's repeatedly used in uh, Revelation. It just gives it more power, like it's building. And it almost lends itself to reading it the way we read it. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And indeed, uh, Christ is worthy. And notice every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, forever and ever. So this is the, the triune God. We've seen God the Father transferring power to God the Son. God the Son is about to open the seals. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Amen. Uh, forever and ever, to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. You know, amens are okay. Amen? Okay. Just making sure you're catching that. Uh, you know, I've preached in a lot of churches through the years, and some are amen churches, and some are not amen churches. And uh, it's always fun to preach in an amen church, i got to tell you. Thank you. <laughs> nice. And the 24 elders, that's us, fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Notice the repetition there of forever and ever. This is it. We're, we're, we're heading to the end. You know, if, we, if believers could really grasp this eternal perspective, which the New Testament, long before Revelation, continues to remind us of again and again and again. Paul says, set your mind on things above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power. We're constantly reminded that life is about much, much more than what you can see and feel and touch. And yet, our tendency is to reduce life to this bare minimum of 80 years or 90 years. And like Solomon says, it's all futile, if that's all it is. You know, you eat, drink, live, work, die. Is that it? No, no, that's not it at all. This is just a speck on the timeline of eternity. And our life is not just about living and dying and going to heaven. That's the way we oversimplify it. 
But God has a plan that is very detailed, very specific, and involves a new heavens and a new earth and us serving and worshiping and fellowshipping together for all of eternity because of the blood of Christ. And Christ shed his blood on our behalf so that we don't have to undergo the very wrath of God. Anybody who thinks that the wrath of God is something that believers can face really does not have a proper understanding and appreciation for the wrath of God. They need to go back and read Revelation 6 to 18 again and just see how and be reminded that God again and again promises us we won't face the wrath. But I hope if you're here today and if you're listening to this on our live stream or watching the video later that there has been a time in your life when you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can forgive sin and give eternal life. He, The same power that gives him the power to take these take this seal and open it and unleash the, the wrath of God is what gives him the power to give you eternal life. He purchased it with his own blood. And he gives it to all who in simple faith trust him and him alone for it. That's how you receive it, by faith. So has there been a time when you've trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation? If not, today's the day. Uh, today's the day. But here they are sort of at the end of this chapter the stage is set. Uh, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Amen. It reminds us what, of what Paul said in Philippians 2. Speaking of Christ being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him at the right hand of God in heaven, Given him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Paul wrote this, of course, one of his prison epistles, well uh, under the inspiration of the Spirit, of course, but well before John wrote Revelation, and yet Paul is confirming what John tells us is going to happen. Someday everyone will bow, either in humble adoration and praise and worship for his worthiness, or in weeping and gnashing of teeth with regret that they never received the payment that he made for them on their behalf. So we'll stop there because we've kind of finished verses chapters 4 and 5, and next week we'll come back and, and, and I promise, well I can't promise because but I don't expect, there's, I mean, there's nothing between chapter 5 and 6. There's not like a chapter 5a. So I'm pretty sure we'll go straight to chapter 6 and we'll talk about uh, the sealed judgments one by one, describe what, what happens and what the result is on earth. Any questions before we close out our, our Bible study hour or comments? Yeah. So the question is, what's the historical time frame of the book of Revelation? So it was written roughly 95, 96 A.D., uh, the last uh, book of the New Testament written under the inspiration of the Spirit. And if you read the end of it, you kind of get a sense for that. Uh, and so the resurrection happened in 33 A.D., so we're talking roughly 62 years or so after the resurrection. 
Uh, the church had endured Nero's persecution. Domitian was now kind of the leader of the Roman Empire. Um, you will find, if you read commentaries, but by the way, as I've said many times, and this is a quote, I think, from Spurgeon. I didn't make this up, but never forget the Bible will shed a lot of light on commentaries. So there are a lot of commentaries out there that suggest that the Revelation was written in 70 A.D. Not possible, not true. Uh, it was clearly written mid-90s. I saw a debate, a scholarly debate, at an academic uh, event one time. Actually, it was at the Pre-Trib Research Council, which I had the privilege to be a part of for many years. I've spoken there twice and speaking again this December. Um, but it was a debate sponsored by them at this annual event in Dallas in December every year between Hank Hanegraaff and uh, Mark Hitchcock. And Hanegraaff, who, by the way, has since kind of departed really from orthodoxy, but at the time he was just more of an amillennial preterist kind of a guy. And uh, he believed that Revelation was written in 70 A.D. And... Mark Hitchcock, a good solid, you know, dispensationalist, took the view that I take, and it was uh, frankly embarrassing. And even Hank, who I talked to later, I had got to spend a whole day with him in his office one time, admitted that it was not his finest hour, and it wasn't because the evidence wasn't on his side. I mean, you just can't make the case. So, so yeah, 95 A.D. Anybody else? All right, well, let's take a break. Uh, for those of you here in uh, the church at Plum Creek Chapel, we'll start up again at 10 o'clock with our announcements and beginning of our worship service. And for those joining by live stream, we usually kick, out, kick on the live stream at about 10.25, 10.30, give or take uh, five minutes.